Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro, and the first thing I want to talk about this week is what's happening here in Israel, because there are people who are uh, opposed to the repeal of what's called the Judiciary's Reasonableness Clause. Now, um, to those who uh, aren't involved and don't follow the news, don't know the details, what happens is in the past, because Israel has no constitution, the judges have uh, essentially taken upon themselves the responsibility of declaring whether laws are uh, legal or illegal, depending upon whether they are reasonable or not. Now, that's a tough subject, since um, who decides what's reasonable? Now, uh, one of the other things that's involved is the fact that the judges on the Supreme Court are pretty much self-chosen. The, the committee of nine people that chooses judges has already on the committee three sitting judges. So in order to uh, get it or appoint a new judge to the court, you need five votes out of nine. But the judges already have three seats on the board, and the others on the board, some of whom are lawyers, who essentially uh, owe their livelihoods to a certain extent to the judges because they appear in court, so they don't want to get the judges angry at them. So the three judges on this committee have a strong influence on those lawyers who are on the committee with them. It's a bit of a complicated topic, but what they're trying to do now is to see to it that the judges don't have full sway on uh, on the laws, especially the reasonableness clause, which, uh, as I said, there's no constitution, so who decides what's reasonable? Now, what happened is, and that's what's sort of frightening, that there's a lot of... Um, demonstrations in the street uh, for and against uh, the uh, changes in the law that will uh, essentially do away with the reasonableness clause. And, uh, for example, uh, I live in the heart of Jerusalem, and there are literally hundreds and thousands of people demonstrating almost every day. I was away for Shabbat, and I came home Saturday night, and I couldn't get near my own home. It was detoured all around because there were tens of thousands of people demonstrating, walking around with his Israeli flags. I remember thinking to myself, uh, it's, a, it's a shame, it's a pity that my own grandson used to be in the flag business and he used to import the Israeli flags from China. He's not in that business anymore, but if he were, he would certainly be making a fortune now because the demonstrators, pro and con, all wave Israeli flags. So uh, since you sell to both sides, you have nothing to lose. But I want to say the uh, something a little bit more serious. Anybody getting their news from mainstream Israeli media over the past month, and particularly the past week, knows that the, there are some military personnel who are threatening not to serve if, this, if the law is changed. And uh, 
the the numbers they account are really big. There was a uh, an article in the paper on Sunday. It said uh, their groups are leading leading the call for reservists to quit. The Israeli army announced that 10,000 reservists were joining their cause, and 1,194 Air Force reservists, including an increasing number of combat pilots, are not going to serve if the rules are changed. So that is a very serious problem, and it, it really goes to, if you will, the basis of education here in Israel where people are willing to say, if I don't like what the government's doing, I won't, won't serve. And I, and I personally came to this country when the government was a socialist government. I didn't like the, what the government did, but I came to live here because Israel was the first Jewish state after almost 2,000 years. Now, if you have people who are, some are actually military hero, heroes, are willing not to serve because they don't like a government policy. And I think there's something wrong in their education if indeed they say that kind of thing. Now, this list of officers who were uh, saying that uh, they weren't ser serve reportedly included two brigadier generals, five colonels, and a number of lieutenant colonels, majors, and captains who served in the Israeli Air Force headquarters as drone pilots, intelligence officers, and other important functionaries. So, the, the television news in Israel, which is left-leaning, the, uh, the, uh, they essentially cheered the political opposition, and they discover and celebrate another such refusal to serve almost every day. At first, there was supposedly some 400 reservists, and um, including uh, those from the General Staff Reconnaissance Unit, and then 420 members of the Naval Commander Unit, and then 350 military doctors, and then some 600 reservists of the Paratroopers Brigade Reconnaissance Unit, 120 reservists of an artillery unit, and 110 reservists of the infantry battalions, then 80 reservists of the, an elite group called the Egos Unit, then the Golani Brigade's Reconnaissance Unit, and so forth. Now, this, this refusal to serve is very problematic. First of all, it could be that the numbers are inflated. In fact, uh, it indicates many of the so-called officers won't serve are long retired from his service duty of any type. So they said they won't serve as meaningless, so they don't serve anyhow. Now, a rare television segment was given last week when the Golani Brigade commander in, said that, uh, he said, hundreds of Golani reservists are currently participating in a massive training exercise in the Golan Heights. Not a single reserve soldier refused to show up for duty. Not a single one. Now, the, the judicial reform is a heated debate. 
uh, and surely, you know, I know I served in the army, and one of the things you do when you're in a reserve, you're sitting around the fire or having lunch, and you talk politics. So uh, they discuss these things. Every per soldier puts aside his personal views when it's time to train with the understanding that Israel security is paramount and they have a job to do that prevails over politics. That is the fact, and that indeed should be the fact. It was reported by David Weinberg, who is, uh, writes an article, an opinion article in the Jerusalem Post. He said that, uh, it, it, by, by my count, I quote him, he said well over 100,000 Israeli active duty and reserve military personnel are on, reject, are on record as rejecting the call to refuse to serve. But you wouldn't know this from the mainstream media or even from the global media. They almost totally ignored petitions and declarations from the center and conservative sides of the political map. They listened to the left side of the political map. They have failed to report what is the major consensus in Israeli society, that refusal to serve in the IDF under the current circumstance and almost any likely circumstances in the future is criminal at best, treasonous at worst, and in all cases, it is enormously damaging and dangerous. So, if you're not a regular reader of the right-wing and religious press, which I am, or a follower of national social media feeds, you wouldn't know, for example, that this week, 150 very senior IDF military intelligence reserve officers published a public call against refusal to say to serve. They called to leave the Israel Defense Forces out of and beyond political debate and a call on all military intelligence personnel to answer with enthusiasm and vigor all draft calls for reserve duty. Now, the letter was uh, written, the head writer was Major General Yaakov Amidror, who was the chief of the research division in the IDEF military intelligence and a, uh, also a national security advisor, and Brigadier General Yossi Cooperwasser, who was a former chief of the research division in military intelligence, and Director General of the Strategic Affairs Ministry, and today is a senior fellow at the Miskov Institute for National Security and Zionist Tragedy. These people uh, are men and women added themselves to the letter that's still gathering signatures or yet reach into many hundreds. But the... Um, Unfortunately, I think most Israelis have not heard the calls of these people, serious senior people, who say that no one has a right not to serve. None of the mainstream media outlets here in Israel, uh, they, they don't give any attention to those senior officials 
and former heads of the army who say there is no excuse not to serve. The in interesting, uh, another um, public declaration was signed by a number of reservists of a reserve um, uh, elite uh, unit called Maglan, but this was ignored by most Israeli media. Top commanders, reservists, uh, the, uh, they get the silent media treatment, meaning no coverage at all when they sought to counter the earlier groups that threatened refusal. And that's, that's true of all the other uh, groups. The only ones who get attention in the media are those who say that they will refuse to serve. Those who say they will serve no matter what, they don't get much attention in the Israeli media. One of the groups wrote a letter uh, to the, the chief of staff of the Israeli army, General Herzl Halevi, and they wrote the following. We call our fellow men to arms, the beloved soldiers and commanders with whom we have been fighting for years, shoulder to shoulder, from all the army units and security system. This is indeed a difficult time, but together we will win as always. The, um, the Colonel Amos HaKohen, one of the uh, organizers, uh, said the great danger in bringing the army into the dispute and entangling the military framework is twofold. One is that the enemies around us will interpret this dispute as a weakness and take advantage of it. The second danger is the precedent of bringing the dispute into the army. Today it serves one side, tomorrow it will serve another side of the political spectrum. You simply can't cannot allow the military to get involved. The use of the IDF and other Israeli security organizations as levers of political pressure on any Israeli government is tantamount to a silent military coup effort. This is the true threat to Israel's democracy. This crosses all red lines of acceptable behavior. This saps the resilience of Israel and of the integrity of the IDF as, as a true people's armies. And all kinds of generals and, and uh, high army officers signed this kind of petition essentially saying there is no excuse for a refusal to serve. By the way, it's kind of interesting. Back in March, a number of months ago, when the refusal to serve festival was uh, just getting started, the uh, various grassroots security movements, uh, one is called Habitonistim, organized a rally in Tel Aviv in support of the army, meaning demonstrated to protect the army from being politicized. The organization published full-page ads in Israeli newspapers. At the same time, key former military men who today are aligned with opposition parties signed the ads. But you hardly notice these ads 
and uh, the you don't hear about them anymore. This is because the media would not discuss or echo the ads against uh, refusing to serve. The, uh, the media covers those who say they won't serve. And so more than 80,000 rank and file IDF reservists have signed an online petition launched by two right-wing journalists which rejects the calls to refuse to serve. Each of those reservists have lent their full name in public to the petition. They feel no need to hide anonymously behind left-wing reporters. The refusal to serve is, a, is simply not permissible. The... Um, so when you, read, you see the media, you get the impression that those who refuse to serve are the majority. I'm sure there are, are those who refuse to serve, but by their, if so, they are certainly a minority of a minority. Most Israelis are patriotic. They know what their duty is. They don't allow politics to affect their service to the country. And that, indeed, is the way it should be. One of the problems, by the way, and I, I don't know what this is like in other countries, one of the problems we have here in Israel is the lack of partiality in the media. The media, except for few exceptions uh, like... Uh, uh, Arut Sheva and uh, the newspapers that are put out by the uh, right wing. The media in Israel, uh, the government-sponsored media, are prim primarily left-wing. And so they ignore those calls from the right wing not to refuse to serve. And uh, so the, if you just listen to the regular radio here, then you're going to get the idea that tens of thousands of people refuse to serve. I would also like to think that the education of these people, whether they're religious or not religious, is immaterial. One of the things that you get from your education, if properly done, is loyalty to the country, regardless of uh, who's running the uh, political system. And again, as I said before, I came to Israel uh, and uh, at a time when the country was essentially a socialist country. And as a matter of fact, Golda Meir was one of the prime ministers uh, uh, when the state came into being, 1948. She, she was quoted as having saying, saying socialism be your menu. There will be socialism in our time. The socialists who uh, were, the, were uh, the first leaders of the country, they felt that they were going to indeed uh, bring socialism to reality here in Israel. As a matter of fact, one of the countries that supported Israel when it first came into being was the Soviet Union. But they had their own reason for doing that. It was the it was the Soviet Union that uh, saw to it that uh, Israel was supplied arms from Czechoslovakia, which was under Soviet domination. 
but we're talking almost 80 years ago. We're living in a different world today. And the very idea of someone saying, I will not serve my country because I don't like the present politics, there's something basically wrong with that. And as I said, just to sum up, the uh, news media are giving the impression that the refusal to serve is a big deal and many more people are refusing to serve. This is simply not true and indeed it should not be true. You don't serve a country based on the politics of the country. You serve because it's your country. If you don't like the politics, get involved to change the politics. Not serving is not a way to do that. I'll be back after the break. You're back with Jay Shapiro, and because of the extremely hot weather in Israel over the course of the last several weeks, I decided to do some background reading about the weather. There's something called, this region is called the Middle East and North Africa region, the initials are MENA, M-E-N-A, Middle East and North Africa. And it turns out this area is, sub, is has tremendous climate change uh, difficulties, and it has repercussions. This largely arid and semi-arid region is actually susceptible the climate change, and when this happens, it exacerbates the the problems that we already have here. There's socioeconomic problems, and there's chronic instability problems, and the weather adds to these problems, such as there's water scarcity, food, food scarcity, there are what's called desertification. More areas are becoming deserts. There's population displacement because of this. And all this will impact on the communities, on migrant populations, and labor forces. So both developing and unstable countries in this region are at risk given their heavy dependence on agriculture and the sizable vulnerable populations they support. Agriculture is a basic thing here in the Middle East and in North Africa, and when the weather changes harshly, it affects agriculture, it affects the food that people have to eat. Now, they, there are opportunities for advancement the, uh, because countries like Israel and Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates have are involved in these subjects of what to do about the weather, and they can make joint ventures concerning water management, 
agriculture, and renewable energy. These escalating temperatures here are, are really a peril to this whole area. It, they, 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 they can say that the, there will be a temperature increase of uh, 2 degrees Celsius over a period of years, and the, this region, the Middle East North Africa region, is expected to endure far greater temperature spikes due to what's called the feedback loop instigated by the warming of the desert. It's a complicated subject, apparently, something I knew nothing about, but there are experts involved, and apparently the warming of the desert is going to affect the whole area. So there'll be extreme hot days predicted, and they're saying that by the year 2050, heat waves are anticipated to occur 80 days every year and 118 days every year by the year 2100. Now, these will surpass the limits of human adaptability, and there'll be a lot of fatalities among sensitive populations, and a lot of people will be moving to areas where they can live. So water scarcity is already a critical issue in the Middle East and in North Africa, and obviously, according to these predictions, it's going to get much worse because of climate change. Now, it's interesting. This area, the Middle East and North Africa, is home to 12 out of the 17 most water-stressed countries in the world. So climate change compounds this issue. Rapid population growth and a heightened frequency of droughts put additional strain on already stretched water resources. You don't read much about this. I, I gathered information from a number of sources, none of which get big headlines. Now, for example, you take agriculture, it's, which depends very heavily on irrigation systems. It's very vulnerable, so because if it gets hot, there's less water, there'll be food, less food, less crop yields, and there'll be food insecurity for the people. So what happens is you have a reliance in this area. Uh, they rely on precipitation for agricultural practices and with in detrimental impacts, declining rainfall patterns could make a lot of people hungry. So the increasing pressure on water resources uh, it's exacerbated by the big population growth. Now, this has caused, it ended up various countries making aggressive use of river and aquifer water. Now, when you, you aggressively use river water, you end up exceeding the natural replenishment capacity. Now, the agricultural sector of this region consumes about 85% of the region's freshwater resources. So this whole thing is imperiled. With the uptick in the frequency and, secure, and severity of drought, droughts, coupled with increased evaporation rates, 
the region's agricultural productivity suffers. This has far-reaching implications, ultimately affecting the food security of people living in this area. Now, this, there's another thing on top of this. Sea level rise emerges as another significant threat to this region. There are about 60 million individuals residing in coastal regions, so a rise in sea levels imperils the coastal cities. It'll lead to persistent flooding, saltwater intrusion into aquifers, and agricultural damage. Coastal wetlands, which act as natural defense against storms and contribute to carbon sequestration, are also set to suffer. So the escalation in desertification, that is more area becoming deserts in this region, exacerbated by soaring temperatures and depletion of water resources, represent a big challenge. Increased aridity results in a decrease in arable land, thereby negatively impacting agriculture and food production. And on top of this, the buildup of desert dust in the atmosphere leads to more potent and frequent sandstorms, which brings about health risks and environmental complications. Now, these all these emerging trends, which are kind of negative, so they pose a real risk to food security. Given that agriculture commands a substantial fraction of the region's water resources, so increasingly hotter and drier conditions will result in diminished crop yields, lowered productivity, and a loss of grazing land for livestock. The decline in wheat production, which is a stable crop in this area, a, a, a decline in wheat production due to heat waves and droughts, will necessarily increase food imports and escalate food prices It'll aggravate inequality and food insecurity. Now, countries in North Africa are particularly vulnerable to reductions in rainfall because nearly 90% of their agriculture depends on rainfall rather than artificial irrigation. There are rural communities which rely on agriculture for income and for food are expected to be profoundly impacted by these changes. So what could happen is that the droughts will become more commonplace, the water resources will dwindle, and extreme heat conditions will continue, so rural inhabitants are likely to gravitate toward urban centers in search of improved living conditions. So what happens is residents of coast, coastal regions involved in agriculture uh, that will they'll ha they'll be, uh, confront displacement due to the rising sea level. So this surge in possible migration will intensify the pressure on urban infrastructures, exacerbating challenges related to sanitation, health care, and housing.
So climate change could act as a catalyst for conflicts within and between countries. Now, the, uh, the, there, are, there are debates over the years, apparently, that uh, regarding the direct causative link between climate change and armed conflicts. That's a sub- subject, apparently, people have been thinking about. I myself never get it, I gave it any thought. The, the, the link between climate change and armed conflicts. So the, um, maybe that'll raise the possibility of conflicts in this regions because factors like water scarcity and competition over resources will pretty much magnify the tensions that already exist. So the uh, disputes over water resources, like those involving the Nile River and dams, could potentially act as a catalyst for conflicts between peoples, between nations. So that is the situation. And again, I admit it's something I never thought about that I started reading these articles associated with the hot weather we're having now. So it also turns out there is a potential for advancement and collaboration. There are technically technology advanced nations in this region, primarily Israel and UAE, and perhaps Saudi Arabia, and they have the capacity to emerge as leaders in devising solutions to the problem of the heating and the climate. So there could be partnerships with international organizations, and they, they could figure out uh, how to cooperate to avoid this natural pr- uh, problem. Like there are things like water management, agriculture, renewable energy, and if the countries could get together, it could bolster stability and opportunities for business, academia, and humanitarian initiatives. Now, right now, there are regional cooperative efforts, but they're pretty limited in scope, and they they really face a lot of hurdles. Now, the um, efforts to sustain and broaden these initiatives apparently are in progress. There's a um, a journal called the Middle East Institute, and they put out a report under the auspices of the Israel Climate Forum, something I didn't even know exists, and it underscores the significance of regional environmental cooperation in this area. So various Israeli ministries and governmental bodies have contributed to these endeavors in in recent years. There are a lot of opportunities for improved regional collaboration as all kinds of challenges that have to be surmounted. Now, interestingly enough, and again, this is something I knew nothing about until I started this background reading because of the heat, these issues are being investigated and addressed by what's called the Israeli Climate Forum. It was established in 2021 by President Herzog, our president, as part of his vision for, he wrote a report called Renewable Middle East. 
So obviously there is a vested interest in cultivating regional environmental cooperation between Israel and its neighbors. The United States and Europe are, are really placed to promote these efforts by offering third-party support to countries willing to cooperate. It could highlight the benefits of environmental cooperation. And it's interesting, it could well be that the climate problems in the Middle East will bring cooperation among countries. The, uh, there are big problems in the Middle East and actually the whole world. We, the rate at which we're addressing climate change is far from satisfactory, according to the experts. They considered a race against the clock, and it seems like they're losing the race. The, uh, the stakes are really high. Now, it is true that the Middle East is home to about 6% of the global population, but the, uh, the countries in this region will face escalating pressure. So the, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, oh, something, again, I had never heard of before, estimates that significant parts of this region may descend in, into uninhabit, uninhabitability before the end of the century if global emissions do not decrease substantially. So that is the situation. Climate change is a danger. Climate change is essentially a, an enemy, an adversary that respects no borders. It, it's a shared enemy between all the countries. It has a menacing universality, and it's a chance, really, for the region to unite, to pull resources, to pull knowledge in a collective fight against a common threat. The common threat is the heating of the area. So, so the any kind of collective response among the countries, but it it, it it's a uh, it, it, we we live in a very troubled neighborhood. And nobody really thought about the climate as being part of the problem. But fighting the common climate problem might be part of the solution to get along with other countries. The, there's all kind of hurdles, but unity and cooperation because of the weather could end up for a, a more stable and more peaceful Middle East, because all of the countries here forget religion, forget nationality. They have one major common problem, and that's the climate. And again, as I said in the beginning, this is something which I quite honestly never gave any thought to, and I doubt if many people do, but there are people worried about this. Like I said, our president, uh, the president of Israel, has put together a, uh, a group to uh, discuss and to come up for solutions for this uh, this problem is the Israeli Climate Forum. It's, it's, it's was, as I said, established about two years ago. The initiative was taken by the President of Israel, and and he felt that 
It would help the entire Middle East and all areas if we fought together to fight the problem of the climate increase, the temperature increase. So again, that's something that's way under the radar. Uh, the, the first article I read about it was on the back page of one. But it turns out it is a major problem and it could resolving it together with other countries here in the Middle East and North Africa could be part of the way to get a more peaceful area here. Forget all the wars and we have a common problem. The common problem is the climate. And if we get together to fight the, the, the problem of the uh, climate, Maybe we'll get together on other things. It often happens, you find, you know, you, you might have a family uh, uh, where, you know, the brothers don't get along with each other, but uh, if somebody attacks the family, then the brothers get together to fight the common enemy. It could well be that the common enemy that will bring us all together here is the climate, something over which we have no control but we can control the solutions to the problem of the climate. I'll be back after the break. You're back with Jay Shapiro, and now I want to uh, give the readers the benefit of uh, a number of items that I call under the radar. The uh, things that don't get uh, big headlines. As a matter of fact, as a rule, they don't even get small headlines. But they give a picture of some of the things that are happening here in Israel that perhaps people don't pay attention to. The first item has to do about an incident that happened at the wall uh, the, uh, in, the, in uh, Jerusalem, in the Western Wall. The abbot of the Dormition Abbey in Jerusalem, his name is Nicodemus Schnabel, was asked by workers at the Western Wall to cover the cross he was wearing around his neck last week. Uh, this was on a video shared by the Spiegel newspaper. The video showed a worker at the Western Wall telling the abbot that the cross was really big and inappropriate for this place. It's a Jewish place. You need to, re you need to respect that. That's what the worker said. Schnabel responded that the request was very harsh, with the worker insisting that it, it be respected his religious and asking people nearby to stop filming the incident. This is not a provocation, he said. I'm an abbot. This is the way I dress. The cross is part of my dress code. I'm a Roman Catholic abbot, 
You want me to tell not to dress as my faith tells me I should dress? So he tweeted that the worker told the abbot that the requirement to remove the cross is a new regulation. Now he responded by uh, writing on Twitter that the unfortunate this unfo the unfortunately not so nice end of a nice tour of the old city through the morning in Jerusalem. It's painful to see how the climate in this wonderful city is changing more and more for the worse under the new government. Jerusalem is big enough for everyone. The Western Wall heard its foundation apologized for the incident, stating that the Western Wall is open to all. It should be emphasized that there are no regulations regarding this matter at the Western Wall Plaza. The usher approached and politely asked if it would be possible to cover the cross to prevent any discomfort, as recently occurred in the old city out of a desire to respect the visitor and the site. When he refused, entry was obviously not polite. The usher respected the decision and continued on his way. So, the uh, why this usher uh, did a thing like that, I don't know. Uh, quite honestly, when I go to the Western Wall, I don't particularly notice uh, what other people are wearing. Uh, what's interesting is that most women showed up dressed modestly. Uh, they respect the place. Uh, turning a person away while wearing a cross, my own, my own opinion, is simply not in place. As a matter of fact, the matter was brought up to the Jerusalem mayor, Moshe Leon, and he stated that he condemns all expressions of violence, regardless of religion, race, or sex, and that is the way it is at the Western Wall. You know, it's the first time I've heard of anyone being uh, turned away because of wearing a, a, a non-Jewish religious symbol. I'd like to think that the person who did that, the guard, simply took things into their own hands and did the wrong thing. So that's item number one. Another item that appears way on the back pages, but I think it's important for people to know, Palestinian terrorists attacked Jewish workers at Joseph's tomb in Naples a week ago, according to an Israeli army report. The army acted to protect, protect the worshippers. Several terrorists were wounded in the exchange of fire. The Palestinians also threw explosives, burned tires, threw stones at Israeli security forces. The, uh, the expedition to pray at Joseph's tomb was organized by the family of teenager named Moshe Kleinerman, who's been missing since early 2022. Now, in the clashes, one Palestinian was killed, according to uh, uh, Reuters. Uh, the... Um, the Nablus Battalion of the Quds Brigade, which is a terrorist organization, said its members were fighting the occupation forces and groups of settlers who have stormed the area of Joseph's tomb. So um, that is what the Palestinians reported. A number of Jews went to Joseph's tomb, and the Palestinians saw this as storming a Joseph's tomb. The result was uh, shooting in both directions. A number of Palestinians were killed while they were trying to keep the Jews from praying 
at Joseph's tomb. Again, something that doesn't get into the headlines, something happening here in Israel. Another item about the Western Wall that uh, doesn't get big headlines, the Jerusalem Court, the Jerusalem District Court, delivered a verdict last week on the rules governing inspections at the entrance to the Western Wall Plaza. Now, what happened was, there's a group called the Women of the Wall, and they uh, filed a lawsuit, and uh, the court stipulated that the entrance inspection should be conducted in alignment with the law of powers of protection of public security. Now, what happens is this ensures the main goal of the checks is to keep everyone safe from potential threats or harmful actions. That's why you have inspection at the Western Wall. The court ruled that there should be no special searches specifying or specifically defined things like Torah scrolls. They are now why Torah scrolls? These are commonly used by women of the wall organization in their services. So if someone is carrying a Torah to the Western Wall, now they won't be stopped or searched just because of carrying a Torah. And furthermore, the court emphasized that these checks should be fair and unbiased. According to this verdict, nobody should be singled out based on their gender, religious beliefs, or practices. The uh, It's interesting, and this relates back to the first item I said that in this section of my program, about somebody wearing a cross. So it's interesting. Here you have someone wearing a cross, and here you have just the opposite, if you will, a group carrying a Sefer Torah. So um, this whole case, why was it taken to court? It all stemmed from an incident back in 2020 where the plaintiffs alleged discriminatory security checks when they wanted to get to the wall. They argued that the intent behind it was to detect the presence of Torah scrolls. So, uh, the, uh, the it's interesting, by the way, the, the, there are management sources at the Western Wall Plaza, and the, the, there is a ban on bringing Torah scrolls into the Western Wall Plaza, and it, in other words, there are enough Torah scrolls there. If you want to uh, um, have a service, there uh, I've been there many times when we have services, particularly on Monday and Thursdays and on Shabbat. There are Torah scrolls at the wall; they're kept there. So uh, they, they they don't want bringing uh, people bringing other religious uh, items like Torah scrolls because uh, they 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 have enough there because what the security guards have to fo focus on is safety enforcement. The uh, the ushers, which are not security guards, they're ushers, the wall, uh, they, they work for the Western Wall Heritage Foundation, and they are there to ensure adherence to the procedures. So... Um, now the women can bring their own Torah. The truth of the matter is, they could have gone there and simply gotten a Torah. I guess they were afraid they wouldn't get one from the people in charge of the wall. So, uh, actually, what they did was, 
but they, the, they had, the women of the wall had uh, filed a personal lawsuit against the Western Wall's rabbi and the Western Wall Heritage Foundation. So the the uh, the court ruled that the procedure of not allowing the entry of the Torah school is legal. So uh, the implication of this verdict on the ground rules of the Western Wall, and which is, I don't know what's going to happen. The, the, the Western Wall is a, a site sacred to millions worldwide. And uh, so its decision about bringing your own religious objects will affect a lot of people, I guess. The, uh, the, we like to feel that there's sanity because you allow people to bring anything you want to the wall. Heaven knows what they'll bring. So we're not talking about security. We're talking about essentially the sanctity of the area. So the, uh, the it is true, though, that the rabbi of the wall has acted as if he had absolute sovereign power, like the Pope at the Vatican. So, uh, the, the, which is, it's it's a touchy thing. But obviously, you don't want all kinds of uh, of odd-looking religious customs to be expressed at the wall. So uh, it's a sensitive business. In the meantime, the women will be allowed to bring their own Torah scroll, even though they could easily get one here. I have to assume, by the way, that they assumed that if they asked for a Torah scroll, scroll from the management of the wall, they wouldn't be given one. That's where they brought their own. So these things, uh, we have enough problems here in Israel without an issue of Torah scrolls bringing to the holiest place uh, in Judaism. But it seems people always like to make, I don't want to say make trouble, that's too strong a word. People like to uh, essentially do their own thing. At the Western Wall, it's not a place where you do your own thing. Uh, so uh, I just want to share that with the listeners. Here's another item under the agenda that has to do with the visit of our president to the United States. There's something called the U.S. Visa Waiver Program, known by its initials VWP. And uh, the question is, uh, how do you treat different citizens from different countries coming to your country? Now, this issue was raised uh, raised when the U.S. president uh, uh, was visited by our president uh, last week. There's a trial now. Because what do you have? You have a lot of Palestinian Americans who want to go and visit their families in what we call the West Bank. Now, uh, previously they could not enter Ben Gurion Airport. They could not enter. They were Palestinian and uh, American citizens. They could not enter uh, the uh, the Israeli airport. Now the trial. That are undergoing is Palestinian Americans from the West Bank were able to fly in and out of Israel's Ben Gurion International Airport, and previously they would generally fly to neighboring Jordan, cross into the West Bank by land, and face restrictions of seeking to enter Israel. In other words, they didn't enter Israel, that they were Palestinians. So the uh, 
they have a new thing allowing Palestinians who hold American passports to enter through Israel's airport. So uh, they're, they're, they're going to have a trial to allow them to do it, and they're going to monitor it. Monitor it. The uh, and uh, the number of Palestinians impacted by the program isn't very high. The Arab American Institute Foundation, an organization of uh, Arab Americans, uh, says that the number of uh, Palestinians uh, who are Americans, people of Palestinian uh, descent, is between 122,000 and 220,000 people. So uh, a U.S. official estimated that of that number, perhaps 45,000 were residents of the West Bank. So uh, obviously uh, the Israel's entry into a program will, is a good thing. The, the, uh, the, there were families in the U.S. who have relatives in the, the area controlled by the Palestinian Authority, the idea now is a pilot program to let them enter through Israel and then go to their uh, the homes of their families. So uh, the uh, it's a commitment to prevent discrimination against uh, Palestinian Americans. And again, it's something that's way under the headlines. Here's another item that's really far under the headlines, but I think is of interest. Uh, protesters in Sweden had applied for and received permission from the Swedish police to burn the Koran outside the Iraqi embassy uh, two weeks ago. In the event, the protesters kicked and partially destroyed a book they said was the Koran, which is the holy book to the uh, Muslims. Um, but they left the area after one hour without setting on fire. Now, in response, Iraq expelled the Swedish ambassador in protest, not be, be, when they heard about the planned burning of the Koran in Stockholm. So what happened was thousands of protesters stormed and set alight the Swedish embassy in the Iraqi capital in Baghdad. An Iraqi government statement added that Baghdad was also recalling a charged affair in Sweden, and the Iraq state news agency reported that Iraq had suspended working permits of a Swedish uh, telecommunications, telecommunications company in Iraq. The, uh, the, the government in Baghdad also informed the Swedish government that any recurrence of the incident involving the burning of the Holy Koran on Swedish soil would necessitate severing diplomatic relations. So, uh, the, uh, it's interesting. So, they, they, apparently, there also there's a second planned burning, uh, but uh, who knows? The, the, it's interesting. One of Iraq's most powerful figures uh, commands hundreds of thousands of followers 
who is time called to the, to the streets, including last summer when they occupied Baghdad's uh, green zone, engaged in daily clashes. So the um, the uh, the decision, as I said, to recall the ch- charge affairs to Sweden came when the uh, when they, they had this protest in Stockholm. So uh, so we have a problem arising between Iraq and Sweden concerning the burning of the Muslim holy book. And um, it was, I looked in uh, the day that it appeared uh, in the Jerusalem Post, it was on page 8. And uh, I looked in all the Hebrew newspapers and it didn't appear at all. So here you have, apparently there's a major dispute between Iraq and Sweden. Who knows what it can lead to, but it didn't get much of a headline. And finally, the uh, last uh, under-the-radar item, which incidentally actually uh, affects me because I live in Jerusalem, the uh, Postal Authority has been closing up uh, post office all over Jerusalem. Right now, uh, the uh, if I want to mail a letter, I have to take a bus and then take a train uh, the uh, to one of the two uh, post offices that are open in the area where I lived. I used to have a post office right near my house, actually two. Now I don't have any. What's happening is it, and I quote for what's happening, the government of Israel through the government com- company's authority hereby announces that it's considering selling by way of private sale 100% of the shares of Israel's postal company. That was an advertisement announcing the official sale of the entirety of Israel's postal company calling for bids. While the news may be uh, like surreal, sur- surreal or, or bittersweet to some, it brings with a remarkable hope that the mail system in Israel may not be the uh, sick forever. The... Uh, the, uh, the the mail system is pretty bad, but apparently they want to privatize it. Let's see what happens. Thanks for listening. I'll be back after the break. You're back with Jay Shapiro. Uh, I've avoided uh, on my programs discussing the big problem we're having in Israel about the uh, government pushing through some legislation that a lot of people don't like. It's a little bit complicated, and since this program is only on once a week, I couldn't really go into details but what's happened is that the country's pretty divided on it. And uh, they, as a matter of fact, uh, something happened which never happened before, and that is in a groundbreaking move, the 150 largest companies in Israel announced their decision to stage a massive strike last Monday to protest against the proposed legislation 
aimed at limiting the use of the judicial doctrine of reasonableness. Now, that much I can tell the listeners. The Supreme Court says, since Israel has no constitution, they can knock down a law or a proposed bill if it's not reasonable. Now, the question is, what is reasonable? The committee that decides this is uh, pretty much made of uh, judges who themselves decide what reasonable is. And that's the basic problem here. The former uh, head of the Supreme Court, uh, Barack, over the course of 25 to 30 years, he slowly gave the Supreme Court in Israel powers beyond any it had ever had before, and not like in the United States where you have the legislative branch, the administrative branch, and the uh, the courts. Uh, here the courts have taken upon themselves to, to, to discuss items that are not even brought before them. They decide that they're going to discuss a bill and decide whether it's reasonable or not. So there's a lot of people and uh, are opposed to this kind of uh, uh, judicial uh, power. Now, so what happened is the country's broken up about this. I doubt if most people understand what the whole subject is about. But now, as I said, the 150 largest companies went on strike. So the impact of this kind of unprecedented strike it's going to, it was felt across various sectors. Uh, shopping centers operated by uh, industry gi- giants closed their doors in sol- solidarity with what's happening. Reading, leading real estate firms uh, and a glut of representatives from the startup uh, high-tech companies have pledged their support, and they're allowing their employees to participate and the protest against the proposed reform. Now, that's very interesting. Many years ago, 20-some years ago, when the Jews were taken out of Gush Katif, I myself was involved in many, many of the demonstrations. But no one thought for a moment that the big shopping centers, and indeed there weren't that many at the time, but the idea of closing down the country was something that never entered our minds. And that's what's happening now. The, uh, in the past few weeks, they, they, there's been unprecedented rift within the society, and uh, there are those who claim that the, uh, the new legislation will harm the social fra- fabric and it will harm Israeli democracy, and this is simply, I don't think, is true. The uh, interesting, and uh, there are organizations here, like something called the Business Forum, which is is the driving force behind all these demonstrations. It's interesting, by the way. I think I mentioned in the past my one of my grandsons used to import the Israeli flags from uh, China. But uh, I'm sorry it's not in the business any longer because uh, I live near the heart of Jerusalem and there were literally thousands, tens of thousands of people walking around with Israeli flags. 
So I'm sorry, my grandson's not in the business anymore. So as I said a moment ago, the details of the change that they're striking against are a little bit complicated, but the very fact that big Israeli shopping malls are closing down and, and, and protest, that's, that's really something new. The country is really torn apart. By the way, I, I, I wonder myself if the people who run the malls decide to close it down. I don't know whether they ask the individual store, store owners in the stores whether they, they want to close down particularly in the heart of Tel Aviv, there are a number of uh, big shopping centers, and uh, there's uh, one or two here in Jerusalem, and if they close down, even for a day, that hurts their businesses. So again, I wonder how democratic, democratic decision was to close down the malls. I think if I had a business in the mall, I think I'd be very upset if I suddenly couldn't uh, serve the public and uh, make, make some profit on my investment. But that's what's happening now. This, this change in the law is uh, causing tremendous demonstrations. And again, it, I'm interested in all these people who walk around with Israeli flags. You know, who's paying for this? Who's supporting all these, uh, all these demonstrations? Again, I don't know, but uh, the, uh, apparently politicians are involved. And it's something that's actually tearing the country apart. The newspapers primarily are in support of the demonstrations, but there's one newspaper called Macquarie Show, which is right of center, and uh, they have a few articles against uh, these demonstrations. So it's a question of right versus left, and we'll see what will happen. The government, uh, the government is pushing through this change, uh, and... Uh, We'll see what will happen. Again, it, the, the, it's very complicated, really, and uh, I just don't think that, that uh, it, I can go into the details. You can uh, you can uh, look on the Internet and you can see all kind of opinions. I understand that President Biden also has an opinion about this, but uh, that's, not a, that's immaterial as far as I'm concerned. So we're going through a difficult time, top off with very difficult weather, it's been 95 degrees Jerusalem uh, all week. So uh, these people who are demonstrating really must mean it. If they're willing to go out and demonstrate in this kind of heat, that means they're really interested in what they're demonstrating about, uh, if they indeed know. So uh, that's all I wanted to say about the demonstrations. Hopefully next week uh, the, the things will calm down and we do a review. Uh, and by the way, uh, uh, God willing, in the next couple of weeks, I'll be, I intend to be on vacation, so uh, I won't have a program, so I assume that by the time I come back, God willing, that this whole problem will be resolved, hopefully. Anyway, I want to talk uh, about another subject, completely different, but something that came to my attention now, because uh, it depends it very much affects the future of this country, and that is that there are signs that the Palestinian Authority that uh, that uh, was given control of parts of our land is apparently about uh, having trouble being, has lost its authority and to more extremist groups in the large parts of uh, Judea and Samaria, 
as a good possibility to Palestinian Authority in which Israel wagered uh, its future uh, uh, may collapse. The, the Palestinian authorities that child of the first Oslo agreement back in 1993, when uh, Yasser Arafat, who was the head of the PLO at the time, agreed to a division of the West Bank in the areas designated A, B, and C, and Area A would be wholly administrated by this Palestinian Authority, and uh, and, and uh, Area B would partially administered by the Palestinian Authority, and this is supposed to be a temporary five-year arrangement, and Area C would be uh, still under Israel. Now, those five years, there was supposed to be a temporary arrangement back in uh, 1993 have stretched out to uh, 30 years, and all the efforts to reach a final settlement failed, and the Oslo arrangement has, has fallen into disuse, and we have a semi-permanent situation that's uh, dangerous, and it doesn't satisfy Israel, doesn't satisfy the Palestinians. So, uh, meanwhile, I apologize for unexpectedly sneezing. I guess I should erase it, but I'm uh, too much in the middle of a thought. The uh, what's happened is the uh, Palestinian Authority has lost its popularity, and uh, because of graft and incompetence, and it's pretty much got a uh, has a security co uh, group that cooperates with Israel, so they're hated by the people for cooperating with Israel. So uh, the uh, there is an organization supposedly in the Palestinian Authority, uh, which is called the Coalition for Accountability. And uh, they put out an annual report about the state of integrity and corruption in the territories under the Palestinian Authority administration. And uh, the report on the situation, for example, in 2022, said that uh, it's tremendous suspected corruption. Uh, there's forgery, abuse of power, nepotism, embezzlement, bribery, non-disclosure of conflicts, inter interest, complacency in performing public duties, occupational exploitation, illicit gain, abuse of trust, and money laundering. All these things are in a report uh, put out by a group which is trying to fight corruption in the Palestinian Authority. So they, uh, they, they, one of the things they mention is that the Palestinian Authority and, of course, Hamas and the Gaza Strip restrict human rights and they abuse their power. The, uh, the the president of the uh, Palestinian Authority uh, is uh, specifically accused of exceeding the authority and making appointments because he puts his friends into power and any money that goes into that area, they skim off the top of themselves. So there's rampant corruption within the Palestinian Authority, but the, the, the apparently the Palestinian population, the man in the street is well aware of this, and he's not happy. So uh, what happens is uh, there is an organization called the Palestinian Center for Policy and Survey Research, and they uh, conduct regular polls of Palestinian opinion. And the results of the survey in 2023 showed a decline in the popularity of Fatah, the Palestinian Nationalist Social Democratic Political Party, and tremendous decline in President Mahmoud Abbas. 
Uh, he's already, I think, in the uh, 17th year of his five-year turn. So, the, um, by the way, the, the collaboration between the Palestinian Authority and the Israeli security forces in combating terrorist activity is also unpopular. Half of the poll, those people polled said that the collapse or dissolution of the Palestinian Authority would serve the Palestinian interest. So the Palestinian Authority, which Israel put there over the Palestinians, is very unpopular among the Palestinians. Uh, they, according to a survey, no less than 63% believe the Palestinian Authority's continued existence is in Israel's interest uh, and not in the interest of the Palestinians. So uh, we have a serious problem because of the Oslo Agreement. We created this monster right in the middle of our homeland. And uh, what's happening is uh, the uh, Israel is holding back money that some of it, which goes to terrorists, the uh, the uh, they say they, that uh, the the Netanyahu uh, is uh, has he made a gesture uh, to uh, to, um, to support the Palestinian Authority. So and also Israel's been under under pressure from the United States to make concessions to the Palestinian Authority. Back on July 9th, President Joe Biden made, had an interview with CNN, and he uh, he described Netanyahu's government as Israel's most extreme ever. That uh, and uh, he he said a few negative things about the uh, Netanyahu's coalition partners, in particular the finance minister and the national security minister, who are very right wing. So. Uh, so what what is what is our prime minister died to do? Uh, he first he said he's going to increase settlement construction. So uh, I'm saying that he'll increase uh, construction in the settlements is a way of essentially placating his coalition partners, and uh, at the same time he's propping up the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. The uh, Incidentally, on July 17th, there was a telephone conversation with, between Biden and Netanyahu, and he reportedly told the president he'd limit construction in West Bank settlements until the end of the year. So he wants to make Americans happy by doing that. The bottom line, and that's the point I wanted to get to without all the details, is the uh, our government back in 1993, brought in the Palestinian Authority, PLO, under Yasser Arafat, and it's created a monster because the Palestinian Authority has lost the support of the Palestinian people. So what's happening is that our government is, is, uh, is propping up the Palestinian Authority when it's losing its popularity among its own people. That's the situation like and now. And the truth of the matter is, it's a nightmare situation. We brought the, the terrorists in, they took over the West Bank, and, the, and they're so dishonest and so corrupt that the people in the West Bank uh, don't like them, and they're turning to the terrorist groups. So we have, we created a monster, and we have to live with it. And these are the facts on the ground, unfortunately. 
And I'm really sorry to <coughs> excuse me to report this to the listeners, but we have to be real realistic. The Palestinian Authority, the said back in September 1993, uh, Yasser Arafat uh, was invited to the uh, White House and uh, he shook hands with Yitzhak Rabin, who was the Prime Minister at the time, and Bill Clinton looked on as they did this, and there was all kind of hopes that would bring a, uh, the, the Palestinian Authority would create a, 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 a viable state that would live in peace with Israel. But apparently uh, uh, Arafat had no intention whatsoever. He was much smarter than Rabin and Clinton, and he ended up creating a, uh, a terrorist authority within uh, our own uh, country, and it's the one we have to live with right now. And these, uh, I don't like the, uh, to uh, end the program on a, uh, on a negative note, but this is the reality. Right now, attention in Israel is brought up uh, about the change <clears throat> that the, uh, our government wants to make and the power of the, uh, of the Supreme Court. That's what's occupying the interest of the Israelis right now. But lying in the background is our problem with the Palestinian Authority, which is looms in the future as a real problem. This, this problem about... Uh, Limiting the limiting the uh, the uh, the power of the Supreme Court is a problem that's going to go away. It'll be solved somehow. But the problem of having this terrorist authority right here in a in the heart of our homeland is a problem that doesn't seem to be solvable for the foreseeable future. And that's our real problem, not the question of how much power the Supreme Court has. And this lies in the background, and it's something we have to keep in mind. Even though all the, the headlines now are taken up by the question of the what's the strength of the Supreme Court, the real problem is a Palestinian authority, which is a terrorist organ, a government that's right here in the heart of our homeland, with no foreseeable future to how to deal with it. So uh, these are the facts on the ground. I don't want to end on a negative note, but I'm trying as much as possible to describe the situation that it really is. I'll be, uh, <clears throat> I'll be away for a couple of weeks, and hopefully when I come back, some of these uh, problems, which look so uh, insoluble at the moment, might be approaching a solution. Who knows? We can only help by uh, and hope. Uh, it's everything's in God's hands. We do our best. Thanks for your own signing off.